1: The bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.
0: This is joining me for the bigger picture today, is political commentator, Mike Indian, author of the Graduate Tendency blog. Um, Mike, it's so nice to be able to actually begin with something of a piece of good news amidst all the rest, which is the return um, to the UK and her family of means Zaghari Radcliffe. So, so tell us a little bit about this because that's, that's ramifications obviously for many other things.
1: Well, it's been it's been a, a long time coming. I think we've we've been through five foreign secretaries on this, we've been through at least, I think, two or three prime ministers in the same time. And we've managed to get to a point where Nazneen Sagari Ratcliffe has returned home to the UK. Um, you know, it's very moving pictures of seeing her and um, reunited with her husband richard and her seven-year-old daughter gabriella who hasn't seen her mother in about six years um also home is anusha asari uh, a civ a nearly 70-year-old civil engineer as well both of them were detained uh, on charges of spying in uh, iran years ago i mean as you say this is a rare piece of of good news as well but also a bit of sort of cross party um goodwill as well so you you've, you've said a lot of this has come down to the work the hard work of the foreign office and it's undoubtedly a success for the foreign secretary liz truss as well it, it's basically come at the uh, come at the the cost of the uk paying about 400 million pounds worth of uh, iranian debt that was owed as well But sometimes that you can honestly say moments like this, the price is probably worth paying.
0: Um, How many areas one could go with it? Um, Was the delay in payment to Iran um, anything to do with this? I mean, that debt goes back quite a long time.
1: The UK's history. In relationship with Iran, could form its own podcast. In it is a long, complicated affair as well, of which the the uh, story of Nathaniel Ratcliffe is one important but um, very recent chapter as well. I, there were a number of things at at play here, and it's obviously despicable that the Iranian government uses. British citizens or mm. citizens of dual nationality as political pawns. But equally, we have to say on this side that although her return is, is welcome and, and undoubtedly a good PR story for the government, um, it shouldn't escape anyone's attention that the prime minister was foreign secretary, uh, one of the foreign secretaries who was responsible mm. for overseeing Nazanin's case and made public remarks that undoubtedly the Iranians seized upon to, to arguably put her into worse conditions as well. On a human level, it's great to see it back, but there'll be many more people who will be subject to this down the line. And of course, the downside of this um, is that the payment of the debt and the high-profile story and, and you know, undoubtedly effective campaigning by Chilip Sadiq, who's Nazneen's local MP, mm. means that this sort of tactic might be used again down the line. And there is yeah, still... Yeah, going
0: to be my next question. Is exactly. The worry that, that by doing it, as, as with paying any ransom effectively, is that you're you're making it appeal to other rogue regimes?
1: I think that the foreign secretary said, and the, 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 the debt is legitimate. And she said that the detainees were parallel issues in the bilateral relationship with Iran. But in reality, as, as with most things, they are connected. They are closely linked to the complex realities of a world that's becoming increasingly polarized. A world in which the the kind of movement and uh, freedoms that Western nations have enjoyed and championed since arguably the end of the Cold War have have become increasingly difficult. And it's also a sign of how there are governments around the world are using, you know, whether it's the uh, invasion of Ukraine. By Russia, whether it's the detention uh, of Nazanin by the Iranian government, whether it's the sort of bizarre nuclear and sort of high level diplomacy employed by North Korea, that countries that champion alternative values are turning to arguably more and more extreme solutions at a time in which they perceive, I think, Western liberal democracy to be in retreat.
0: Mm. Um, Hers are obviously very, as you say,
1: high profile.
0: I I knew absolutely nothing about Anisha Ashuri, who was a, a retired. Civil uh, engineer again with dual nationality, being held in the factory, rather appalling. Evan ev- um, prison. Um, what was? Why was his case so much less um, public knowledge?
1: I think, to be honest, there's often a story that captures the media's ma- imagination, and I think the young family and you know, a young daughter and, and, and a husband that goes on hunger strike can definitely be part of that. But Mr. Asuri's case was, was arguably no less dramatic. He was detained in 2017 on spying charges and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now both uh, Nazneen and uh, Mr. Asuri have denied consistently and vigorously the allegations put against them. And it's great that they'd be able to come home together. And there's even a third detainee, uh, Mourad Tebez, who is a iranian uk us national uh still remains in iran uh he's been you know he's, he's a businessman and wildlife conservationist he's been accused of gathering classified information and uh, but i think i think that you know there's been a consistently high profile campaign but it, it's, it's it's rewarding i think that this is achieved not just um nazi's release but uh mr Shuri's release as well but there will be arguably many more complex cases like this to come and it underlines the importance i think of uh, not so much, you know, of hard power, but, you know, soft diplomacy, but unfortunately we have to recognize that increasingly the people that we are dealing with this with are playing a different ball game mm. to what traditional diplomacy has been since the fall of, of the Berlin Wall.
0: Um, do you uh, perceive any change in the attitude of the government towards Iran, now that it's possible because we need Iran's oil? Um, We've got sanctions in force against Iran. Of course, since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, we've been sort of cozy up to many um, regimes um, who might have fossil fuel that we need, whereas before we were able to ignore them.
1: Well, we have to you can't really escape the fact that the Prime Minister has been in uh, Saudi Arabia the last couple of days, trying to uh, shore up uh, oil production in the wake of uh, and reduce the reliance on Russian oil and gas, which is the country's main uh, export. The Prime Minister's uh, trip was not a great success, um, primarily because he was unable to persuade um, Saudi Arabia's rulers to increase oil production as well. And uh, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, despite the two hour meeting, they, uh, Saudi Arabia still recognizes it holds all the cars. But these countries also they have to recognize that they are. Possessing a dwindling resource that, and, and until and this is arguably the importance—not just of energy security, but also the push towards renewables and net zero—which means that we need to reduce our dependence on any sort of foreign energy imports as well. And the, the UK has an abundance of you know renewable sources around us, whether it's tidal, wind—you know, there are many of the sources we can tap into as well. And there's bridging technologies like nuclear energy as well. The government's already looking at trying to extend the life of the size well B nuclear plant unfortunately for proponents of an outward looking world there's been arguably a resurgence of self-interest the kind of rail politics school of international relations that I learned about in my in my first year (laughs) at university as well Mm. and we shouldn't forget that there's been continued speculation about whether or not what's happening in Ukraine amounts to what people are, are calling a third world war uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't view these conflicts these these tensions through a the, the, the traditional lens of of history because you know, as we've pointed out large large-scale invasions of european countries have been practically unheard of for the last 70 80 years with the exceptions of the balkans war and uh and, but what, what isn't has been uncommon is is the is the reluctance of western nations to commit troops so we have to square this with uh, and this is arguably i think the biggest failing: is that th- this generation of leaders that currently are in charge and i, I will exempt olaf schultz and emmanuel macron from this the american and british leaders in charge so the johnson government the Biden administration the previous trump white house have all had at some point or another uh a tendency towards isolationism that dominant doctrine that doctrine that dominated the us um, until arguably the second world war and uh, although Joe Biden has announced $800 million worth of military aid to Ukraine, it still feels like comparatively uh, small potatoes mm. compared to anything else as well. And the one thing that to connects to a later point, I wouldn't um, absolve Boris Johnson for and do Joe Biden for is that saying that they stand with Ukraine now when they have taken a series of steps that I, I think have arguably emboldened administrations like Tehran, like, vladimir putin's russia whether it be the withdrawal from afghanistan whether it be the UK's departure from the european union whether it be a lack of sensitivity to uh the diplomatic nuances in cases like nazny Tagari ratcliffe's as well which boris johnson's successes at the foreign office have had to pick up and run with as well and full credit to liz trust but also her predecessors for getting this over the line too and also the officials behind the scenes mm. the place we're still working out our place in this world and it, it is a it is a complicated messy multipolar world now in which the the only big superpower isn't is uninterested is really in things increasingly in things that happen outside its borders and there are nations that are still prepared to uh, not to play by the rules that we most people felt should govern international relations and diplomacy following the end of world war ii mm.
0: one more question on on this topic before we leave it um Saudi Arabia, of course, Iran is a massive thorn in its side, and for them Iran is incredibly important. Do you feel that our slightly better relations with Iran, which have led to the release of these two actually um, political prisoners, have had anything to do with Saudi Arabia's you know unwillingness to help out the Prime Minister?
1: I think that plates within and region like the Middle East are shifting i think countries like saudi arabia have to consider their their place in the world when they do not have the the, the oil and these countries mm. possess you know obviously you know things like sovereign wealth funds for example they need to consider what their future is too but i think it also underlines the fact that and it's funny enough i was reminded a couple of years ago that just that rather remarkable stunt that donald trump pulled by going to north korea and stepping into the country um you could argue whether that was a cheaper spectacle but the the idea that it was it certainly demonstrated a, vis- a visible desire to build bridges even if it's just a temporary one mm. and perhaps there is no easy answer to this but the best way to try and navigate an increasingly complex world is to think away from people who have been our traditional allies if america's pivoting to asia and the uk wants to move away from europe then that need, that means we have to forge new alliances with other countries even if ones we have traditionally had bad relationships with Mm -hmm. And perhaps the return of Nazanin Zaghari-Ratcliffe could be a new chapter in UK-Iranian relations. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If If. Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
0: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to the Bigger Picture on Share. We in conversation with We have to turn our attention, of course, to um, Ukraine. It's not really very long ago. We were just discussing whether or not Putin was going to invade. Uh, Clearly he has, though that's not how the Russian press appear to be portraying it. Um, So the situation is in flux all the time, uh, Mike. Um, And whatever we say now may be out of date in a day or two. But let's talk about things as they are at the moment, but on the ground in Ukraine, and as far as uh, other nations and their attitude towards what is
1: happening. The events in Ukraine are fast paced and ever evolving, and of course inevitably anything else we say at this point in time when we're into week three of the invasion are going to be vastly out of date by the time people listen to them as well. But the context on the ground appears to be ever more desperate. And as the conflict drags on, there are increasing reports of atrocities committed by Russian soldiers, in the city of Mariupol, which has apparently almost been entirely flattened due to bombardment. Uh, one particular story that stuck out, probably a quite a painful story, was the bombing of a theatre, which was understood to have been used um, as a shell, civilian shelter. They'd even written outside on the, on the pavement so Russian, um, Russian aircraft could see it, that indicated that children were sheltering there as well. And equally on on the Russian side, there seems to be a high, there seems to be a high toll paid. Um, Russia hasn't announced an official death toll of its soldiers in two weeks, but we know that at least four senior generals have been killed in the conflict. Uh, Russia's had to concede losses, you know, they've acknowledged hundreds a couple of weeks ago, it could be the thousands and and this 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 feels like an unwelcome relic of history but unfortunately as, as we were talking about before it's very much a, a symbol of the modern day diplomacy and president biden's uh, calling vladimir putin a war criminal is is a reflection i think of how a leader who um you know President Biden would normally, in you know, ten years ago, made his predecessor shoulder to shoulder with at GGA events. Not necessarily in the same corner, but they'd share the table. It reflects how Russia under Putin has moved from being a country wanting to be at the centre of the world to a a state that's increasingly a pariah one, as well. And and all the all the while, there is talk at the back of what is the West actually doing? to support the ukrainian government the undoubtedly the the invasion has not gone as vladimir putin planned we are settling in for what is undoubtedly going to be a protracted conflict um as with any uh as with any situation there unfortunately are going to be casualties and the free the phrase that we, you know, struck me was, you know, collateral damage is is just not just just doesn't cover it as well. These are people's lives, and it, it, here in the UK, you know, there was there was a hundred thousand people signed up to a, a website that was finally been opened, and the Johnson government finally reversed its position on having Ukrainian refugees in there from some rather insensitive comments by the immigration minister saying they could come here and pick fruit. I mean, these people are, you know, the, the ones who can make it out of their country have been forced away from various. Conflicts and uh, ultimately the uh, the situation demands, I think, a a degree of sensitivity. It demands a degree of nuance that I am not sure is entirely within the realm of understanding for our current crop of politicians. I mean, the one fact about Joe Biden is, in this case, that he he has chaired the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has yeah, a I'm long. Say, I
0: mean, originally we were told he, he was an expert in, in foreign affairs.
1: Well, I think he's he's definitely a long fit scrutinizing it as well, but unfortunately, he's come into, bear in mind his long 50-year political career, he's come into this role now at a very different time to when he came into it. He's very much a, a child of the sort of post-war era when America was very much on the field. I think he's also, he's seen Vietnam, he's seen the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's had to deal with the fact that American military hegemony has been consistently challenged over this period of time. And then at some point near the end of his political career he finds himself as president having taken on a degree of uh american nationalism and america first which has a great deal of resonance and i i can say that the louis III documentary on the bbc around the rise of america's far right reflects this growing trend uh among particularly among young people in america so to be radicalized and wishing to look in which is not necessarily an impulse but does biden challenge that does he go with it personally it's a very brave leader who does challenge it and i think biden should have challenged it but it's easier said than done particularly if you have to recognize the mood on the ground foreign affairs doesn't win you the presidency but if biden's going to be a one-term president then arguably he can say look you know actually i think america has a place in the world um,
0: there was some surprise at the degree to which western um, nations. At least united very quickly to uh, uh, oppose Putin, at least publicly, uh, in what he'd done. I mean, it's, it's very complex fiction, as you say, that requires more nuanced perhaps than it's got sometimes. What about nations like, I mean, we can expect China not necessarily <laughs> to come out against Russia. They're obviously closing up to each other in an interesting way that's going to change the tectonic plates, as you referred to before. But what about countries like, like India, some the world's largest democracy, um appears not really to? willing to uh, condemn the invasion
1: the reality is that there are a number of countries out there that have risen to prominence over the period which america has been the dominant force within the world china's obviously the most important one um equally although india is as you say, the world's largest democracy is currently ruled by a hindu nationalist in uh, narendra modi somebody who again advocates a particular group but it, it shows how this tendency towards internalism towards nationalism has there are many countries which are immune to it you think about Bolsonaro in Brazil you think about Trump you think arguably about the the, the rise of um, right-wing populism but also I think of the the slightly odd view of the world proposed by Jeremy Corbyn and his wing of the Labour Party recently so I, I don't think there's been many countries that have been immune to this as well and, and the fact is that in germany i think they're probably alone in the sense they've managed to actually maintain a fairly outward looking government and their shift for example a historic shift on military spending that they announced a few weeks ago is, is, is it was a very brave and bold decision by olaf Scholz, and will probably reflect quite poorly on angela merkel's legacy given the fact that she didn't invest invest in this as well but in terms of nations being outward looking and Willing to engage the Ukrainian war is, is very much a line in the sand on that on that moment as well, if, if NATO is reinforcing its eastern border, are we effectively drawing a line down that side of Europe again and having some form of link to. Um, the East abolished and it's it's never entirely. Um, it's never entirely clear, I think, whether the eastern side of um, Europe wishes to lean towards the West or to lean towards Russia, and you have complicated facts about the fact that whereas um uh, Belarus is very much with Russia on this, another Russian ally Hungary is inside the European Union and we don't live in the world of clear-cut issues anymore. We cannot draw these lines clearly on the map and say you're this is for and against and uh, there won't be a moment in the Ukrainian conflict, where I think we can say arguably achieve victory. The Russian troops may fail to take the country, but there will probably be a messy occupation for a while. And this isn't a case where the West could simply ride to the aid of this as well, because ultimately you're picking a fight with a nuclear power with a man run by a man who has a danger to instill view of his own uh, self-importance, but also appears to even be alienating those around him at the moment too. This is a complicated issue. And as as I said before, Simon, there are no easy answers. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
0: This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio. I think you want to look a little bit about... what the pressure that um, britain is able to bear on um, some of the the oligarchs and putin's friends you want to look at the uh, uh the ennobling of um, somebody uh, the
1: yes circle once. <laughs> yes so there. inevitably uh, we talked about the tools that were available to the west to respond to russia um there is a new podcast out there, yes, I, I, I'm shaking, but there are other podcasts apart from this one, uh, other podcasts are available, but um, the uh, new podcast out there with uh, Alistair Campbell and Roy Stewart, which is very much for, to use that term centrist dads, but um, Roy Stewart, I think, made a very excellent point about how the West can use in his eyes, its economic might, as it were, he talked about how actually in terms of shifting away from defence funding, we've invested in public services and he said actually, you know, Western economies are Dozens the time the size uh, times the size of Russia's economy, and he said, "Look, you need to use this influence. Uh, using need to use the influence carefully and target the right people. And obviously, people will be familiar with the." Um, People will be familiar with the, the pressure that's been on, say, Roman Abramovich to be sanctioned as well. But attention has now been focused on uh, Eugene Lebedev, who is the Russian born uh, owner of the Evening Standard newspaper, but also a member of the House of Lords. His father is an ex KGB agent, and he's somebody who has been in the past quite close to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has spent time with him as well. Uh, the Sunday Times has reported in March 2020 that the House of Lords Appointments Commission, which vets appointments to the upper house, has advised against the Prime Minister um, to appoint his longtime friend to the House of Lords. The Prime Minister overturned this, and another source has confirmed to the BBC that there were security concerns as well. So you have the son of a prominent Russian oligarch now sitting in the upper chamber uh who somebody who's has a great deal of influence he's he's he was awarded these periods of services for philanthropy and the media as well uh mr levedev has used his lord levedev has used his column in the evening standard to deny he poses security risk to the uk saying he's not uh some agent of russia but again it highlights the complex factors as well in in a world where again and this 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 i think raises questions about the prime minister's political judgment that we should forget about this as well and and by by no means uh should we excuse uh boris johnson uh, it may seem petty to focus on parties at this particular point in time but actually the prime minister's political conduct is very much at the center of this And it, the, the lebedev case actually brings it front and center again it brings it through in a clear lens to show how boris johnson's political connections are continually questionable in this sense and it doesn't the fact that he's you know it shows that we talk about the difference between say russia and um countries like the united kingdom united states the difference is that we have an established democratic system with checks and balances in there but if the prime minister is prepared to personally intervene to overturn uh, a recommendation from uh the independent commission that's designed to highlight these concerns one must argue first of all why did he do it and secondly the other factor is a good baron johnson has been consistently bullish on russia as well uh, and his former advisor dominic cummings has said that he supported these concerns and, and told shouldn't go ahead with the peerage um claiming he was anti-russian but the prime minister has been one of the biggest hawks on russia for ages so how does he square what was his reasoning for overruling? Because it may be that he has access to information that would completely exonerate lord evan and if, if so he should make this information public to prove that there is integrity in our system but the more the silence goes on as well the more questions it raises about influence and access particularly given the conservative party's strong links from uh, finance coming from russian sources over the years that have gone to many parliamentarians, both present and past.
0: Thank you very much indeed. So uh, that's it for this edition of the Bigger Picture I'm in conversation with little Indian, author of the Groucho, well, thank you.
1: The bigger picture going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.